0: The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief, and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical the operative word being recovering sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life so grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith why do we call it a brew pub because we like to hang out in them at least metaphorically a pub is a great place to let your hair down share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open
1: mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and today uh, we're going to go through what I call 10 facts that disentangle Jesus from Christianity and the church. So I got this idea after um, listening to a podcast that Jim Palmer did, uh, and the title of that podcast was, What Do We Do With Jesus? For people who are who have deconstructed evangelicalism and are trying to rebuild something, and uh, he had some really good things to say, and later on, I had him on my podcast, and we talked partially about this and unpacked it a little bit, and, you know, uh, we agreed that, It's a good idea to uh, lay out a way, uh, the way, the historical way to disentangle uh, Jesus from what we uh, think of as Christianity and and especially from what the modern church has done with Jesus. So um, the points I'm going to make, these 10 facts, they are um, part of uh, some content that I've already developed uh, there's a blog post on this that I'll link to that has a little more detail. Um, and my book, of course, Breaking Bad Faith, covers this uh, in, quite in depth. So um, what what's happening here is that one of the things I learned when I deconstructed uh, evangelicalism, uh, it taught me some things about Jesus. Uh, there are a few exceptions, but... Basically, modern churches t- have tangled Jesus up in a huge wad of unhistorical beliefs, doctrines, and practices. Um, and if you do a sound, uh, non-sectarian study of history, you can disentangle this, and you can kind of get a better glimpse of, of, of Jesus and what his uh, teachings were, were about and the original meaning of those teachings— so the following ten facts are going to help us do that. We're going to, you know, slowly disentangle Jesus from modern Christianity and the modern church. Um, and this is just going to be the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of sources that I'm deriving this from. There's a lot of research that in the uh, in the book it, it'll have footnotes to those those sources. But in this particular podcast, we're just going to. Kind of dive in and go through the the uh, the 10 facts. So the big idea is this: once you understand uh, things like the history of the early Jesus movement, how Christianity developed into a flu blown religion, uh, the historical, religious and cultural context in which Jesus lived and taught, and learning how the Bible was co- compiled and and many uh, cases was mistranslated um if you when you do that the real uh, a more authentic message of jesus emerges and you rediscover that that message is often uh certainly the majority of the time distinct from what we think of as christianity and in general very distinct from evangelicalism so you can then extricate jesus from religion and see, so to speak, the real deal. So what's the number one fact? The number one fact is Jesus did not start a new religion called Christianity. Uh, He was not a Christian. Of course, he was the founder of this movement. So later on, his followers started to be called Christians. But his uh, original goal Um, And intention and practice was to um, introduce and develop a universalistic, progressive Jewish uh, way of faith that opened up Judaism to all, to all the Gentiles without having to jump through hoops in the law of Moses, especially to all the unclean that were considered unclean by the leaders and the elites in Second Temple Judaism and the unclean, you know, had to kind of jump through a lot of religious hoops to be deemed accepted and forgiven by God. So Jesus rejected this Second Temple Judaism system. Uh, He rejected a strict adherence to the law of Moses and also practicing the sacrificial system. So um, his path, you didn't have to convert to Judaism or a new religion to embark on his path. You you could be a, a hated Samaritan, a Roman, a Gentile, and still enter the Jesus community. His intention was never to found a new faith, a new religion, but merely open up Jewish thought uh, to a belief in a universalist God who doesn't need a religious system, who doesn't need priests, for example, or sacrifices, or temples, or some kind of church or synagogue system, or religious codes of conduct. Uh, those aren't necessary, but the, the, the way that he paved was a way of living life based on love, and we'll get into that later. So that's the first fact. The second fact is that Jesus, number two, Jesus did not found an institution called, quote, church. Uh, neither did Paul neither did Peter. Uh, When you look at history, uh, you find, and you look at the biblical text in the original Greek, uh, you find that the Greek Greek word we translate church is ekklesia, which simply means a gathering of people. The same word is used in the book of Acts to describe a mob of people that came after Paul. Paul, It was just a gathering of people. In that case, it's a word that could be negative, it could be positive. It's just a group of people. And so Jesus was saying, I will build my ecclesia, meaning his following, his, his people. He wasn't talking about an institutional church. Well, how do we know that? Well, um, uh, we look at history. We see that uh, the look at the New Testament texts uh, outside the lens of a modern viewpoint, and we can see that, that this is true. Uh, he didn't institute things like um, Christian priests or pastors who are t- the top leaders of a church uh, things like professional clergy, church buildings, church hierarchy, ordination, clergy vestments, uniforms, so to speak, statements of faith, creeds, tithing to a uh, a church or other church rules uh, or or like church authority over uh, its members. There were leaders in these communities that began, uh, but they weren't patterned the way that we pattern modern church systems. Um, Basically, the only admonition that Jesus gave uh, to his followers was to embrace the love ethic that he taught. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Those are the top uh, commandments, those are the things that really matter. And when you actually, Paul went to so far as to say, if you love your neighbor, you fulfilled the law, you fulfilled what God desires. That's the only requirement. Um, this doesn't mean that all church is bad. Uh, it means um, the church model that we use mostly in in modern times is a model that's foreign uh, to the original model, and it, and it's a problematic model because it has all these hierarchies. It has church leaders. It has uh, a built-in kind of a ability to abuse the system, let's say. Um, so that's a whole nother topic to get into as far as how that works, uh, church abuse, etc. But uh, going to church today is optional for anyone who says they follow Jesus or his ethic. Um, so The early church folks did not go to church. They did have compassionate communities, but they were very different from what we call church. Okay, so that's two. Uh, What's number three? Number three that helps us to disentangle Jesus from Christianity and the church. Number three is Jesus did not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. Now, this takes a while to deconstruct, but uh, if, if, if uh, you get a hold of my book uh, or um, books by people like Peter Enns, um, Christian Smith, uh, there's several others that I cite, you'll, you, you'll be able to deconstruct this myth that I call that Jesus uh, treated the Bible the same way that conservative Christians treat the Bible today. That's just not true. History does not that, uh, um, bear that out. Uh, Jesus saw the scriptures like most of his fellow Jews saw the, the scriptures um in that time uh it, the Jewish people had not even come up with what we call a canon or a um uh, uh a final list of scriptures there were a different depending on who you asked people would have different lists of scriptures And they hadn't come up with that. And and they didn't come up with that until after the time of Jesus in the second century. Um, So the Jewish people um, uh, had a debate going on on what was sacred text and what wasn't. So that's why you have things like the Sadducees only accepted the Torah. Um, Other Jews uh, recognized the Torah and the prophets and and their wisdom writings. Uh, and the history writings, but there was other. There was this other Greek translation of the quote Old Testament that had uh, the Torah, uh, the prophets, and the Greek. Um, excuse me, the um, wisdom writings, etc. But also had fourteen books that never found their way into our modern New Testaments. So in Protestantism, at least, and so. You know, that's really remarkable, but that was the text that the earliest uh, Christians' followers used. Uh, that was the text that the, the writers of the Gospels quoted. So they were quoting a, a sacred text that had 14 books that uh, most Protestants don't even recognize. Um, the Essenes was another stream of Judaism, and they had additional scriptures that they thought were divine, things like First Enoch. And that book was quoted in the New Testament book of Jude, as, as if it was Scripture, but it's not in our Scriptures. Um, so Jesus entered into these debates uh, about, you know, what was divine, sacred text, and what wasn't, and what inside those texts was really reflecting the nature of God. So Jesus actually uh, challenged many of the things in the Torah— And and said, no, those aren't from God. And he picked out he chose um, uh, cited scriptures that reflected uh, his his vision of what the real authentic father, God, creator was really like. Uh, He did not when he starts talking about the scriptures, we read into it that he accepts everything that we accept. That's just not true. Um, He did not believe in nor teach that the Bible was infallible. I like to say that uh, he saw the scriptures as a set of human writings with some of God's fingerprints on it. And he was pointing out where he saw those fingerprints. So um, one example would be, um, you know, he uh, cited the prophet Isaiah and said, several times i god says i desire mercy not sacrifice so he was agreeing with the prophets um who by the way critiqued parts of the (laughs) the bible the bible critiques itself the prophets were critiquing parts of the torah and jesus was agreeing with that and uh saying things like god desires mercy not sacrifice you're going down the wrong path folks um, and he also, of course, is famous for saying, "You've heard it said this, but I tell you this." And when you look up each one of those, kind of look at them and uh, kind of dissect them a little bit, you'll find that he was definitely challenging and contradicting uh, things like uh, reciprocal violence that you find in the old in the Torah, the "eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, show no pity" passages. Uh, he was. He was um, challenging the oaths, passages about taking an oath, about the Sabbath. Uh, he was challenging the, the notion of uh, the practice of casual divorce. He was um, uh, uh, pointing out some things where he would uh, add, add uh, things to the Torah that weren't there. Uh, so like hating someone in your heart um, uh, or having lust for a married woman um and also adding things that were vaguely there in the torah but not really explicit some of sometimes it was there but he was really making a huge case for loving your enemies which largely was just not in the torah it was it was a contradiction of most of the torah um and uh um you know he was kind of thing saying things that at some level Ah, uh, contradict what was in uh, the scriptures, or went beyond. He was bringing things that went beyond the the Jewish scriptures. So that's number three. Uh, he did not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. So, what's number four? So number four is um, Jesus was not condemning everything that is non-religious. In quote the world that that um term the world is very often misinterpreted uh, or or mistranslated really um, when he spoke about the world uh, he wasn't talking about everything that's outside the church or all aspects of the government or you know all the Liberals out there, or all the non Christians. He was talking about the world of mercilessness, the world of violence, retribution, corrupt sacrificial religion, selfish greed, control over people, and authoritarian notions of uh, religious and political power. He wasn't condemning partying, uh celebrating uh celebrations. He actually changed water into, if you do the math, eight hundred bottles of really good wine. <laughs> um he uh, uh he, w- he wasn't condemning all non-traditional uh sexuality he didn't even talk about uh you know homosexuality at all he was um, he was actually condemning anything that harmed other people, uh, and we can see this um, when we kind of deconstruct and dissect things that he said, uh, and look at what scholars were, are saying about the original meaning, and look at what the culture of that time was doing. So, for example, he condemned casual divorce, but he didn't condemn all divorce, and. Just a couple of books I'll throw out there, because that's kind of a hot topic, is Instone Brewer has a great book called Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible. And if you look at the passages about divorce in the source New Testament, you'll see more accurate translations and some footnotes about what was going on in the culture concerning that topic, that issue. So he condemned the corrupt religion of the day. Uh, he was condemning any religious or government or economic system that hurt the poor, the unclean who that hurt the unclean, uh, and the marginalized, and and anything that made the elite wealthy at the expense of the poor. For him, that was the world. Okay, a violent, uncaring, uh, authoritative world. It wasn't everything that was outside of what we we think of as religion or or Christianity. Um, so uh, that was the world for Jesus. Okay, number 5. Jesus okay, what we're talking about is the 10 facts that disentangle Jesus from Christianity and the church. Number 5. Jesus did not believe in the traditional heaven hell paradigm. Okay? Now, lots of people have debunked the doctrine of hell. I have a video about it. I have a section in my book Uh, about it, Um, and so you can find some resources, and if you go to the blog article I wrote, you can find links to those, but suffice it to say a a couple things. Jesus's talk of the kingdom or the reign, another term is the reign, was hardly about the afterlife at all, but rather about the here and now. So, for example, um, I think it was um, Matthew that uses the term kingdom of God And Luke and other gospel writers use, excuse me, Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven, and uh, Luke and other writers use the term kingdom of God. And they're basically the same thing. So the kingdom of heaven does not mean heaven. It means the rain that is from heaven. It's from above. It's from, you know, God. And kingdom of God is the same thing. It's the kingdom of God. It's not the afterlife. Um, and he taught that 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 is at in at hand. It's it's within us. It's in our midst. And and it's good news that the kingdom of uh, of God or the reign of God of the loving God is here, and it, it was to be fleshed out on earth. You know, His kingdom come, His will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Um. What's more, his talk of judgment was primarily judgment on earth and not the afterlife. So uh, this kind of gets into a lot of details, but uh, let me sum it up that all the terms that are translated hell in the New Testament are mistranslated. The notion of hell was not taught in the Old Testament. It's an idea that came in from pagan religions, uh, and it seeped into Judaism and and didn't seep into Christianity until probably a couple hundred years or more after uh, Jesus started his movement. Uh, So um, just a couple of examples uh, when he spoke of uh, Gehenna and that was translated hell. Uh, Gehenna is a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Uh, It's commonly known, even in that day was commonly known as a metaphor for judgment. Jeremiah used that term. And it's basically saying if people did not change their evil and violent ways, uh, their hatred, their violence, their the way that they treated each other, uh, they were at risk of being killed by their enemies or caught as a criminal by the Romans and their bodies would be thrown into this fiery garbage pit that was always burning because it was uh, burning, burning all kinds of things, and, it, it, and they just had the thing burning all the time. Uh, and so that's literally what Roman, the Romans did to criminals and insurrectionists. They threw them into the garbage pit, Gehenna, uh, their bodies, after they were killed. Um, so that was what Jesus was, was warning about, those kinds of judgments uh, in the here and now. So, um, just uh, uh, another point would be that there's this other term called eternal punishment, and that phrase, of course, is badly mistranslated, and uh, Bentley Hart, David Bentley Hart, and and Dr. Ann Nyland, and their New Testament translation, uh, they rightly translate that term, because it really shouldn't be translated eternal punishment. We can get into the details of that if you look at the sources, but heart translates it the chastening of the age and nylon translates it the rehabilitation for a set period of time the word eternal is really not eternal it's having to do pertaining to an age or uh, a a a period of time and it can be long or short depending on the on the circumstances and sometimes uh, that's exact that word in the hebrew version in the, old, in the Septuagint was used to describe very short periods of time. So regardless, Jesus wasn't talking about eternity in those judgment statements. He And he was talking about something rehabilitative, something that was corrective, uh, something um, that there's another term for uh, retributive punishment, timoria, and he didn't use that word. He used the word kolasis, which means like corrective punishment, punishment to help people um, reform. So that was, uh, number five, um, in our list here. He didn't believe in the traditional heaven hell paradigm. He was talking about, uh, warnings to, to, that people, um, if they did not repent and get on the way of love, the path of love, then they would reap the consequences in some way, shape or form, which was a restorative way, not a retributive way, a way that was painful but not a way that uh, would send people to eternal conscious torment. Um, So, number six, Jesus um, was actually um, a non-religious, progressive uh, Jew who called for a new way of life. And that new way of life, it wasn't a religion. It was a new way of living your life. Where everyone treats, where you treat everyone as equals, you pursue social justice for people who who are needy, and it, it wasn't a a religious path. And so, once you understand that Jesus did not start a new religion, and was not instituting a religious church movement, you can see this clearly. Um, he called people to repent, which means change your mind. Uh, about the religious and, and imperialistic ways of the world, the way we described it before, and start to believe and act on the good news of God's reign of love. The kingdom is not, uh, or reign of God is not religious or political, but simply the reign of a loving God who desires an egalitarian society and tells us to start to love one another, including our enemies, and have compassion on the poor. And the marginalized in our midst. so uh, that is a a non-religious for lack of a better term, progressive way a uh, uh, new way of life. okay, number seven um, Jesus was nonviolent and restorative, not retributive. so we started we, we kind of unpacked the doctrine of hell and you and when you do that, you realize okay he wasn't talking about eternal punishment he wasn't talking about hell he was talking about other things but what are those other things are they punitive are they retributive are they you know like my way or the highway you know if you don't measure up you're going to eternal damnation uh what were they right and so i make the case um in my content and in my book breaking bad faith that um once we see his view of accountability, uh, it was not to punish people for punishment's sake or to follow the reciprocal violence of the Torah or to uh, send people to hell for, for, because they didn't measure up. Uh, we, uh, we start to see that he was restorative. He was, he was promoting restorative justice as the solution for wrong, wrongdoing and evil. So, for example, uh, he won over Roman soldiers. Uh, Tax collectors were ripping off the poor. He won over uh, violent offenders. Paul was was a good example. He welcomed anyone who responded to his call to change their mind and start living a life of love. And he forgave people without conditions. Um, He actually told God while he was on being tortured and murdered on a cross to forgive his torturers and murderers, for they know not what they do. Um, He did not retaliate when unjustly arrested. He told his students not to take up the sword and did not call for revenge after his resurrection. So he was nonviolent and restorative, not retributive. So very important. Unpack those other things, and you'll see this uh, fact. Okay, we're get, we're making progress, folks. We're on number eight. Um, Jesus taught accountability for evildoers, but not in the way we typically think. Okay, so um, we kind of talked about this in in number seven, but according to the Gospels. Uh, Jesus challenged the corrupt teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the rich, and anyone who harmed their neighbor, but his accountability was always restorative. He said those who refused to change uh, their minds and hearts would face some kind of a trial or judgment, but for corrective purposes. So um, he also kind of turned the world upside down. So street workers, women prostitutes, uh, hated tax collectors uh, who were ripping off the poor, they were entering the kingdom, the reign of God. And that doesn't mean entering heaven. That just means entering into the reign of God that was going on in the background on earth. And they were entering before corrupt religious leaders. All right? Um, but he also said that, but the latter, the religious leaders, the ones he was naming out as corrupt, he also said one day they will enter too. Because he said they, the others enter first, not that, the, that these other ones will never enter. Uh, and he also said things like, you know, you won't understand this until you learn, uh, you know, he told these religious corrupt leaders, uh you won't understand this and come into the kingdom until you learn to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Basically, if you if you finally, you know, learn uh that you've really been um deceived and, and your world view. Um so uh judgment for some who didn't help the least of these among his brethren, and that was another uh the sheep and the goats parable, for example. That judgment, as I said earlier, the translation should be, instead of eternal punishment for those folks, it's rehabilitation of the age, or some kind of phrase like that, not eternal conscious torment. So the lost will be found in Jesus' world. Jesus didn't come into the world to destroy people, as he said several times, but to rescue people. So uh, he taught accountability for evildoers, but not in the, the typical way that people think. It was a restorative justice way. Okay, number nine Jesus did not die as a substitute for our sins. Okay, so this takes a while to unpack. And when I deconstruct it, this probably took the longest time for me to deconstruct because in evangelicalism, we're programmed to think when when you hear a phrase like Jesus died for our sins, that that means Jesus was a substitute that we deserve to die, be tortured. And Jesus took our place and he had to take our place because God couldn't forgive us just on his own. Someone had to pay for it. And so Jesus made the pay, the ultimate sacrifice to pay for it, went on the cross. And then now finally, God can forgive us if, and only if we accept this kind of atonement theology. So that was what I was taught, what evangelicals are taught. But when you go back into history, uh, this notion of substitutionary atonement, what some people call penal substitutionary atonement, um, did not exist in the early uh, centuries of the Jesus movement. In fact, the whole, the the notion of a substitute or 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 uh, uh, death by and satisfying God's or appeasing God, that notion didn't even enter in in Christian thought until the 12th century, by a, a guy named Anselm, and then later on John Calvin in the 16th century developed the penal version of this atonement theory. So um, you can go into that in more detail and study it on your own. Looking, looking, uh, some of my writings and content, and other people like I don't know Brad Jursak comes to mind uh, off the top of my head. Lots of other people, uh, Michael Harden, have talked about this and debunked it. But the uh, Eastern uh, uh, Orthodox Church, for example, they've never had this belief. They think the evangelicals are wacky with this kind of a, a, a notion. Uh, it causes a whole bunch of problems. It sounds like God is uh retributive and he can't forgive anyone unless some kind of violent sacrificial religious act is done and uh i really unpack that in my book violent sacrificial religion you can see a trend in some of these things that are going on going on that people end up believing in violent uh or divine violence violent sacrificial religion Someone has to be scapegoated, someone has to pay, someone has to die, someone has to be executed uh, in order for God to be appeased and act and forgive. So um, that was not a notion, in the earliest church Never was, was never articulated at all until the 12th century, and the Eastern church, they never adopted what the Western church finally adopted as the penal substitutionary atonement theory, or at least most of the Western church. So um, so the most common view of, of w- the meaning of the cross uh, was that Jesus died so that sacrifice and a transactional view of God is no longer necessary. So uh, um, it's like uh, if God in the form of of Jesus, takes the most extreme uh, evil that humanity can throw at him, torture on a cross and murder, uh, and he still forgives because Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't retaliate. If that's what God is like, then there's no need for sacrifice. There's no need for payment. There's no need for this transactional view. Of God. Okay, so that was number uh, nine, I believe. So that was Jesus did not die as a substitute for our sins. So now we're ready for number 10. And if I think about it, there's probably more than 10, but I, I thought these were good ones. Another one I think of is the original depravity view, which is kind of tied to the substitutionary atonement, because it's the view that oh, God can't, um, you know, we're born depraved, we're not good, we're uh, morally bankrupt because of what Adam did and Eve did or, and 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 we've inherited this and you have to accept this uh, uh, version of Jesus and then the atonement in order for God to forgive you or else your default destination is hell, right? So that's the original depravity and that's really tied to the substitutionary atonement because if you believe in original depravity, then you might be uh, uh, tend to look at the cross that way, that it's a payment because we're totally terrible people uh, on our own. We're, and actually, Calvin believed that um, we lost the image of God or virtually lost it. Now, again, the Eastern Church and other streams of Christianity did not believe this, but... Uh, uh, you know there, there there is a doctrine of, of sin, but it's it's simply that none of us are perfect. we're immature spiritually, we need to grow, we need to you know uh, uh, be transformed in some way, shape or form, but we're basically good people. We need to we need to find uh, God within ourselves because God has already accepted us and loved us, loves us. We just need to tap into that. We don't need a payment. We don't need to jump through certain hoops. Believe exactly certain things about the atonement in order for God to forgive us and show His love to us. So uh, that was like a little rabbit trail I went on, but that kind of you can kind of add that as a subtext for number nine. But number ten is this, and number ten is Jesus did not believe or teach that He would return to Earth thousands of years in the future to judge the world and set up his kingdom. Okay, so there's two parts to this. Number one, no early followers believed this. Uh, as a um, biblical scholar, named, uh, his last name is Shanks, he wrote a book called Partings, How Judaism and Christianity Became Two. As he says, the idea of a second coming of Christ in a far distant future uh, was alien to early stages of Christian thinking. Okay. So you unpack all the scriptures about this, what Jesus said, um, what Paul said, and they, they were not looking into the far future for Jesus to return. Okay. They, they believed it was a, um, something that would happen within a generation and we'll get into that. But, uh, The other part of it is that Jesus also did not teach that he would physically return within the lifetime of his followers. Okay, so bear with me. This can be controversial for some folks, but if you read uh, people like, oh, I don't know, N.T. Wright, um, uh, even even Calvinist R.C. Sproul, (laughs) who I would disagree with vehemently about 90% of the things that he says, he did. He did have a, a fairly good view of of the end times, uh, and and realized that uh, most, if not all, of the things that you read in the New Testament were talking about that next that that generation. It wasn't talking about something out in the far future, but it was not, and it wasn't talking uh, about literally uh, something would happen. Another author would be N.T. Wright. Uh, Um, And when you get into the original Greek, you realize that these terms that people use, like the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Christ, that word is really a better translated the appearing of Christ, not the coming of Christ. And all these weird terms that were used, uh, you know, coming in the clouds and uh, uh, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Father, etc., these were typical cosmic, apocalyptic Jewish terms that were used in the Old Testament, and people knew that they weren't literal. They weren't like, oh, you'll actually literally see Jesus coming on a cloud. There was, For example, in, in um, one of the Old Testament passages, there's a uh, passage that says God is coming on a cloud swiftly, something like that. They knew that those weren't literal terms, Um, and another point was when Jesus um, was talking about the end of of the age. Most people interpret that as the end of the world, right at the very end. No, he's talking about the end of an era, the age of Second Temple Judaism. He actually uses the word age, not the the world, the the world the the word world. Um, So. uh, he He wasn't talking about things that were literal. I uh, wasn't talking about a rapture uh um his statements were really uh, that in at the end of this age where he predicted that the Jewish temple would be destroyed and this sacrificial corrupt religious system uh that some Jews were following the majority, not all but the majority would would uh would end. And that was that was the end of the age. Um, but his statements were really a statement that his good news of peace would be vindicated. And that's what N.T. Wright uh, comes to the conclusion. The word coming really means appearing. Uh, and it also doesn't stipulate what direction. There's, it's not like coming to earth, right? It doesn't mean return to earth. It just means his appearing, wherever that is. And that could be uh, metaphorically, Uh, at the right hand of God, like Jesus said at one point. uh, It's a kind of a mystery, but people weren't taking it literally, okay? Um, So as for the tribulation that Jesus predicted, again, he said that would happen within a a generation. uh, And that period of time that he called the tribulation and, and, you know, uh, all the things that he talked about that would happen before this, you know, this appearing of Christ or vindication of Christ uh, that all came about between the 60 CE up to uh, 70 CE when the Romans uh, came and destroyed uh, both Jerusalem and the Jewish temple in, in, in response to the Jewish revolt. The the thing that Jesus was trying to get Jewish people to, to not do, to hate and attack and stage of revolt against their enemies, they did that and they were destroyed. Uh, at least the temple and the city were destroyed if they happened to be there and they didn't flee. So anyways, that was number 10 uh, about the end times. Again, I'm kind of tipping, uh, hitting the tip of the iceberg in all of these things. These, these might provoke a lot of questions for folks like, well, what about this? And what about this? And you can find some of those answers in, in my book. Uh, and um, I also cite other books um, that have go into more depth in, into these things. So, so the question is: um, After learning these historical points, what do you do with Jesus? If you've deconstructed evangelicalism, conservative Christianity, what do you do with Jesus? Well, if you can disentangle him, like going through these points, learning some more things about the uh, about these facts and disentangle him from the way that he's portrayed in conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist Christianity, you can start to see that there's a non-religious Jesus out there, okay? And uh, what matters to that non-religious Jesus is how you treat other people and how you follow the path of restorative love and peacemaking—that's what really counts. Okay, it's not uh, going into a new religion, being part of an institutional church, um, you know, having certain political views about X, Y, and Z. Uh, it's all—it's about a way of life of love your neighbor, um, love God. But actually, you can actually do this outside. Of Christianity because Jesus didn't start Christianity, it was a totally different animal. Um, he wasn't about that, so you don't need to be uh actually a technically a Christian to follow the path of Jesus. You don't te- you have to be in Christianity, or you can't, or you can be. Uh it's people are are can choose how they want to live this restorative way of love if you feel and agree that this is a superior way to to live life. So um, I make this case in in Breaking Bad Faith that uh, you can discover and find this restorative way of peace and uh, of love, non retributive love. And um, I give a lot of examples of stories from the from today about people who actually do this. They actually. Put this into practice, and they're not necessarily Christians, and they and they win people over to uh, a restorative love a way of life. Um, evil people, etc. So white supremacists, uh, KKK, uh, Ku Klux Klansmen, um, uh, you know, domestic terrorists. There's several examples uh, in in the book. So, folks, that's what I wanted to share with you today the 10 facts the disentangled jesus from christianity and the church um you know learn some more about each one unpack them ask questions you might have you might not agree with everything but that's that's fine that's all all, all this process is about is dealing with questions doubts and if you don't find a satisfactory answer keep asking questions keep digging until you do. So what do you do with Jesus? That's up to you. I try to, I try to give people signposts, uh, to point people to ways that they could go on a path, but I don't tell them where they should land on their path. So, um, that's, that's the approach. So that's it for the spiritual brew pub this time. Um, stay tuned for the next episode. Enjoy responsibly.